0: Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Catherine, and I work on strategy and content for Climate One. We've been interviewing top experts on all things climate since our podcast got started over a decade ago. But now you're the ones we want to interview. Climate One would love your honest feedback on a survey we're doing to better understand our audiences. We're offering everyone who participates the chance to win one of eight $250 gift cards by going to climateone.org forward slash survey. We really look forward to hearing your thoughts there. Thanks again for taking our brief survey. Again, that's at climateone.org forward slash survey. Does solving climate change mean rethinking old top-down approaches and embracing big change at high speed? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton.
1: The environmental agenda now before the Congress includes laws to deal with water pollution, pesticide hazards, ocean dumping, excessive noise,
2: careless land development, and many other environmental problems.
0: When President Nixon announced the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency in 1972, it marked a new commitment by the U.S. government to addressing environmental issues. But a half-century later, some argue it's time to challenge some of its basic assumptions.
2: The original environmental framework was uh, designed in a world that was information-poor. We're now in an information-rich world. And one of the things that we can do differently today is track those harms and make people pay for them.
0: Daniel Esty is Hill House Professor of Environmental Law and Policy at Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and Yale Law School. Green to Gold, the 2009 book he co-authored, shaped corporate sustainability, and remains a seminal work in the field. He's editor of the new book, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. No matter where you are, no matter
3: what you do, climate change risk is coming in some gradient or form.
0: Andy Karsner served as Assistant Secretary for Energy Efficiency and Renewables under the second President Bush, and he's highly active as an energy investor and advisor. He's a space cowboy at X, Alphabet's moonshot factory, formerly known as Google X. Esty and Karsner both worked in Republican presidential administrations, but over the last two decades, they've been rethinking the role of government and markets in solving climate change. I began our conversation by asking Dan Esty about the role he played in the 1992 UN Framework Convention that kick-started the international climate effort.
2: So I was part of the US team that uh, worked for a couple of years to bring together the kind of emerging sense that we needed to do something about climate change, building on the science that had been consolidated by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it you know, took several years uh, with negotiations every three months for a couple of weeks to shot to bring together uh, an initial agreement, a framework convention, as we called it. And uh, that was uh, worked out in the spring of 1992 and then signed by presidents and prime ministers at the uh, famous Rio Earth Summit in June of 1992. And that launched us uh, on uh, the mission we're on to try to respond to climate change. Uh, and frankly, it was uh, the only thing we had in place in the United States for quite a number of years until the 2015 Paris Agreement.
0: And compare that approach, the, real, uh, the idea of how the theory of change for, for how climate change would be addressed then and now.
2: So I think the, the view in 1992, and, and it was a, a broad consensus about people who were thinking about the problem of climate change, was that we needed top-down action. So national governments would set the framework And really more than set the framework, tell people what to do. And we thought that, you know, frankly, once there there was the commitment in place and that people were all around the world arguing for action, uh, we would make things happen. So I actually negotiated that agreement and then left government thinking I'd done the job. Twenty years later, I uh, kind of woke up and realized, wow, we haven't done it. And I think what what uh, I began to argue for going into the 2015 Paris conversation that's now produced the Paris Agreement was a recognition that um, presidents and prime ministers don't actually have their hands on the steering wheel of a lot of the elements of society that determine a society's carbon footprint. So we needed to build in a bottom-up strategy alongside top-down. Frankly, um, a national government approach alone is not enough, and in in many ways, not even the right place to start. So we now know that uh, governors, mayors, corporate leaders... National uh, leaders in all kinds of organizations have to be part of the conversation and, frankly, have to deliver in significant ways. And I think the the core of the strategy in the 20th century was command and control. The government would tell people not just what the target was, but sometimes what the specific technology that they had to deploy company by company, industry by industry. And what that did was lock in answers, sometimes reasonably good ones, sometimes not so good, and it left us without a strategy that had much space for innovation. So I've become convinced and that's my own essay in this new book is around how important it is to structure our policy approach in a way that spurs innovation. And with innovation spurs investment and the flow of funds to these new approaches. And so I think we've learned a lot in the intervening now three decades since we first were putting together that original 1992 agreement, some of which is captured in the 2015 Paris Agreement. But there's more space for innovation, breakthroughs and and frankly, new approaches.
0: Andy Karzner, one of the the stepping stones to the Paris Agreement was the Bali roadmap. You were a key negotiator in that. So tell us your role in in the Bali roadmap and how that kind of went to Copenhagen and Paris.
3: Well, you know, first of all, Greg, thanks for having me back. It, you know, the last time I was here, we was sitting with Tom Steyer. It was right after Paris. So you might run for president one day, Dan, <laughs> and uh, that that would be good. Uh, um, you, you'll recall we had those reflections on Paris, and and. I was sort of happy to say, okay, you know, we're done. We turn the corner as a planet and everyone except for one country or two, I think it was Saudi Arabia, Nicaragua, uh, said this is in fact happening. Uh, And that, after three decades, represented progress. You know, these cops that people talk about, conference of the parties, were meant to be implementations of the work that Dan and Bill Riley and the Rio Summit produced uh, uh, way back then to say, uh, uh, we have this framework convention, now let us implement. And it went awry. At a famous one called Berlin a few years later where the Chinese and the Indians succeeded in saying we will never be a developed country. Uh, and that then got embedded into Kyoto. Uh, and there was a big split amongst the people in the Clinton administration and who were working for Vice President and you'll recall that Kyoto came back as meant to be the seminal implementation. Um, and uh, the Senate rejected it, uh, I think, 98 to 0, something like that.
2: Uh, they ever, never yeah. even put it up. They, well, uh, they got, did the yeah.
3: straw poll. Or they, they,
2: they had something called the Byrd-Hagel Amendment, yeah. which before the president could even propose it, was put through that said, don't bring us a treaty yeah. unless the developing countries have signed on.
3: So the net of it was it was fairly dead on arrival. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a young, naive uh, governor with a Texas accent in a controversial election stepped into the White House uh, and uh, said, nope, it's dead, deader than a doornail or something good in Texan. We'd say stepped in dog doo-doo And uh, back home. Uh, And and, uh, and, uh, my mentor George Shultz had said, it wasn't that George W. Bush rejected Kyoto, it's that he rejected it with such flourish. And in fact, that's um, uh, led us into this long, polarized period of uh, beginning to talk about what had been a scientific consensus across our country in the way that uh, is Pluto a planet or not. Uh, you know, we talked about these things in a sensible way. It led us into uh, whose tribe are you in? Are you a believer? Are you a denier? Are you protecting the oil interest? Are you protecting the solar panel guys? We, we you know, uh, have, have gotten uh, uh, worse and worse and more and more polarized. But prior to that, when the lines were closest, uh, when a consensus was last uh, uh, evident, uh, as Pew's uh, research would show, uh, in 2007, 2008, we uh, were able to rejoin the global consensus with the Bali roadmap. That was the significance of it was that after a 10 year hiatus and not being part of the global community, we rejoined. The United States took a leadership role. We created something called the major economies meetings, which the Obama administration then took on and Todd Stern and Jonathan Pershing uh, did their work. Unfortunately got detoured at Copenhagen, but it led to Paris. And, and then the question is, so now what, you know, everybody's in Madrid The kids are rightfully impatient. They don't like an outdated UN process governing them with a 20th century thinking about um, top-down mechanisms that require 180 countries to all agree at once. They don't feel like we have another three decades to move. And to me, that's the importance of Dan's book is is taking experts and saying we are going to democratize the way people have access to problem solving and enable bottom up solutions to accelerate at an unprecedented pace. Fundamentally, if I was taking away your book, that that would be my takeaway.
2: And I would say uh, even beyond that, we don't wait for government. Uh, There are lots of ways to go forward ahead of certainly national governments, maybe even ahead of what city and state governments can do. And I think one of the you know, steps forward of Paris was also to say, we're not going to have everybody have the same standard. We're going to let people choose a goal, commit to a goal and then have a diversity of ways to pursue that agenda and move things forward. And I think that's progress. You know, people will say, well, it doesn't add up to enough. And that's true. But it does get everybody on the playing field. And of course, the, the big flaw of the original 1992 framework convention was that it only invited a subset of countries to actually commit to action. So the so-called Annex One list of countries, 40-something industrialized nations. And everybody else was asked uh, to play if they wanted to or they could sit on the sidelines. And almost everybody chose to sit on the sidelines.
0: Not a surprise there. And Paris includes everyone. Dan Estey, you think that there's a shift happening underground, behind closed doors, in Republican political circles. Tell us, what's the evidence of that?
2: Well, I've uh, myself been testifying before the Congress recently in the month of December and uh, was asked to sort of lay out a pathway that the country might follow. And uh, of course, there's Democrats and Republicans in the conversation. And I won't tell you that the Republicans stood up and cheered during the testimony, but a number of them said, Would you come back to my office later this afternoon and spend a little time with me thinking about uh, what a Republican approach to this problem might look like? So I can tell you there are conversations going on. Uh, the minority leader in the House is. Uh, convinced, uh, being as he is from California, that the future of the party depends on having something to say about climate change. So Kevin McCarthy is on this team that's thinking about it. And frankly, I think you will see um, not this year, not in 2020, but in 2021, a shift in the in the dynamic of this conversation. You will see Republicans coming back at climate change, and frankly, I think back to the sustainability agenda more broadly uh, with a recognition that from an electoral point of view to just be against it all is not very viable over the long term.
0: Andy Karsner. Uh I feel like I've heard this before. 2015, when Pope Francis came to uh, Washington D.C., there were ten Republicans who then took what was a bold move. Chris Gibson, Republican of New York, and ten, uh, 10 Republicans came out of the closet on climate and said, "We think something ought to um, ought to happen on climate." Chris Gibson is now no longer in Congress, so we've been hearing for years about a prison break. Republicans going to come out, and yet. What we've seen with the party doing recently in a president who's vehemently opposed to climate. Is that realistic to think that it's going to happen in um,
3: 2021? Not while this president's in office. Um, you know, I, I, I've also testified on the Hill. I, I agree with what Dan has said. There are uh, Republicans in Congress that it, it, it's not sort of, well, I totally understand the science now. I'm all with it. I just got caught up. Sorry about that, memory lapse, whatever. It really is closer to, um, look, uh, the red states are getting pounded by hurricanes. We can no longer insure our homes. Our municipalities are going broke. We don't understand why water is in the street in Homestead, Florida. And we are out of reasons to protect the oil industry to figure out uh, what to do because uh, our votes are at count. So, So there's nothing that motivates in D.C. like fear, and fear is hitting the hill because, except for California and fires. Almost every other immediate impact of climate change is happening in a red state
0: and suburban okay. districts who it, are key to the electoral strategy.
3: Absolutely. And so that I'd separate that from the question of executive and administrative leadership. Uh, uh, this president, this issue is hopeless. Um, you know, you can invite Gore to the office and, you know, uh, have Ivana roll out some ideas of some other soft uh, uh, meetings. But, but the reality is when Bush was the antichrist and eats his children and want to destroy the world, back in that day of mythology, it was a difference of opinion. It was simply, uh, we would like to do it uh, this way, uh, as opposed to that way. Uh, It wasn't, this doesn't exist, it's a hoax, Uh, the Chinese are trying to take our jobs. uh, um, This president lives in a different place. And more important than this president, as with any administration, he's only the face of a franchise. You know, the real question is, who's the team beyond the sort of, uh, you know, nepotism and mafioso he's got himself surrounded with? The real question is, who is capable, competent, has the acumen, experience, relevance, diplomacy, to Execute anything in those jobs, and the answer almost across the board is, I don't know. Nobody really knows who these people are. And uh, yeah, I know the guy who sits in my office managing the two billion dollar applied science portfolio for the federal government our national labs is the guy who wrote a book about how all this stuff is a waste of money and uh, fraud and abuse. So, so this is a particularly ideological bent gang of folks. And uh, are you if- still a Republican. Uh, What a good question. I'm a uh, Bill Riley, George Shultz, Ronald Reagan Republican, uh, to be sure. Uh, I am a Republican from the party of Lincoln. There is nothing that this con
2: man and Abraham Lincoln have in common. So I, I think what I see happening is what you just suggested, but went by very quickly. So I want to come back and focus on it. And that is what I see now is that the Folks that were saying it's all a hoax are of two groups, one who are staying with it and others who are saying, you know, that that was never really the problem. The problem was the policy framework that our democratic friends wanted to put out or the environmental community wanted us to follow. And if you can tell us that there are other ways to achieve these goals, ones that are more focused on uh, harnessing business innovation, Uh, finding ways to engage people in breakthrough thinking um, and get beyond the sense that the answers are all going to be more government programs, more dictates from government, more mandates, more command and control regulation. Then we want to have a conversation. Right. And frankly, that's what I think the better planet book is about. Let's get beyond the debates of the past and look forward and dig into the substance. And as I talk about this book out across the country, I see an enormous desire to get into the substance, get beyond that tough politics, and start to move forward.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about big ideas for confronting the climate challenge. Coming up, getting the people with the most at risk in a destabilized climate to sign on to the solutions. You're not ever going to get them to join a
3: national coalition by saying, if only you had as much access to education, resources, tech companies, and wealth as we had, you'd be as educated and you wouldn't be ruining my life.
0: That is not a winning argument politically. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton and we're talking with Andy Karsner, a former official in the Department of Energy under the second President Bush. He's also a space cowboy at X, the moonshot factory affiliated with Google. And Dan Esty, professor at Yale and editor of the new book, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. Thomas Rashad Easley is Assistant Dean of Community and Inclusion at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and a contributor to Dan's book. He also raps under the name Rashad Ease, and he's coined the term hip hop forestry to describe what he does.
1: Yeah. I'm a part of two communities that, in my opinion, don't come together pretty often, and that's hip-hop and then that's forestry. This hip-hop forestry and poetry is getting late, this flowetry. This academic superstar gonna plant a seed and grow a tree in my front yard, Locally. Uh, on my block, Hopefully. make others do it, Locally. not fresh air, Hopefully. I'm thankful for oxygen, a tree hugging not out again, but trees my family, you see I lost a lot of friends. Humans I don't talk about climate change only in terms of forestry, I talk about it in the music, you know? I talk about it in my poetry. I go to places where people who are just like me in some regard. And then at the same time or at different times, I go to places where people are completely different than me. You know, so I show up in those spaces and have those conversations where most of my colleagues don't even go. I do what my colleagues need to do if they really want to bring people into this discussion. You have to build a relationship first. You have to make the time to do that. You have to learn what they're going through then you start to talk to them about climate change because you're talking to them about change and how it's impacting them. We found Nemo in a contaminated stream Near a landfill in my backyard Near a swing set, cancer can kill But we play in brownfields Surrounded by sound kills Sirens, horns, shots, trains It's all around here I want to escape But how far does the Uber go? Buses wheelchairs are hard to navigate And Yellowstone since I think it's a mistaken method is to take people out of their environments and take them on hikes and take them to forests and take them to mountains and different things like that, you know, and then just hope people will fall in love with it. You know, that's what the Forest Service did with me. And they've done it with a host of other people of color, you know, like, let's give them a scholarship and then we'll just throw them out west somewhere. No, what you should do is you should show people the beauty at home, show them how they exist or help them understand their existence in their home places. Even though I was in the biggest city in the state of Alabama, I grew up gardening with my grandparents. This forestry, our trees are not a commodity. They teach us show us how to live on trouble, land and harmony. This simple forestry, because both roads from underground, one change landscape, the other change the landscape for sound. we're not scared when people or bugs approach it. We don't just worry about P O S. We worry about C O S. This our forestry, emissions we don't do. Carbon. If you don't know how to communicate with people, then you that means. you're also part of the problem. So regardless if you want to change, save the planet or not, if you can't talk to the people who are cohabitating with you on this planet, then you're not really helping the situation at all. You're actually also making it worse. It was
0: Dr. Thomas Rashad easily Assistant Dean of Community and Inclusion at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Studies, the music you heard was his song, Hip Hop Forestry. Uh, Dan Estee, first of all, pretty cool that the school has such a dean. And address the idea there, crossing that race and class divide. You don't take people, throw people of color into nature and say, here, love it. You got to bring it to them.
2: Well, first of all, it, it's a joy to have his essay in the, this collection. Because I think it goes to an issue that has been under the surface and yet critical and that is how do you build an environmental coalition that it can obtain in a majority support for some of the things we all now would say need to be done. And I think as long as the conversation was all conducted in the the language of uh, upper middle class suburban white folks you're going to leave a lot of people out of it. And so Thomas is drawing on and bringing into the discussion folks who never would have been part of it. And so I'm thrilled to see that. And I think what he's saying is a pretty profound message, and that is you've got to go to people on their terms, not make them come to you on your terms. And and I would argue that there's even a deeper message there, and that is we are going to have to respond to a whole set of communities who are doubtful that their life is going to be better in a sustainable future, better as we address climate change. And I think we have been systematically under attending in the environmental arena broadly to transition strategies. How do you help people who are uh, worried about change, doubtful that they're going to survive uh, the kind of charges that Andy and I want to make people pay for the harm they're causing? You know, the internalizing of these externalities. And I think um, this has got to be part of the the conversation.
0: Andy Karsner, yeah, the the, uh, there's a concern in the term just transition that the people who are harmed and left behind in a fossil fuel economy are left behind in a green economy that just serves coastal elites and people who can afford it. Um, is Is that fair?
3: Yeah. I think we're seeing it right now. And even in the most progressive places like California, we don't actually have a good handle on the governance or design to manage uh, the just transition that we would desire. I mean, fundamentally, most of the things that exist in our commons, if they're natural commons, the harm is going to affect us equitably. Therefore, the participation, the stakeholding in, in, uh, in trying to solve for the harms needs to be uh, accessed equitably. Uh, we haven't designed that as yet. And that's why somebody in uh, Palo Alto can pump sunshine uh, into their uh, Tesla with no, and uh, in- earn a tax credit for uh, their Tesla, as if they weren't going to buy a $100,000 car if they didn't have a $7,000 tax credit. And they can uh, have avoid uh, road taxes, avoid gas taxes, avoid everything else, leaving that for uh, people who, uh, that $7,000 credit won't even cover bus fare for a year of commuting. So we have massive uh, inequities being induced, even as we're seeking to catalyze a green economy. Uh, nothing worse than what is happening right now with the wildfires. That, you know, fundamentally, we have a situation where unbeknownst to California is people are mapping where the lights go out and when they map where the lights go out and the fact that California is defaulting on a hundred year promise of a social compact to deliver uh, a just equitable on time reliable on demand uh, power supply. Even before, it's a revised social compact and made green. We're defaulting on the original one that allowed for these monopolies to take place. So what's happening is, uh, people's property values are getting hit. Those property values get hit, the tax base goes down. You know, uh, uh, the the property values get hit, the tax base goes down, they become uninsurable properties. These things are cascading through California. And meanwhile, we have a utility that's in bankruptcy just seeking how to service its um, equity investors. I mean, we have a real conundrum and that's in the most progressive state. That's before you get the states that aren't thinking about the transition at all. So this dislocation being caused economically is something very real and requires us to be proactive in design in the same way that uh, FDR or TR, you know, uh, that Teddy was uh, proactive in design. And this is a Teddy Roosevelt moment.
2: So, Greg, let me me just jump in on that, because I think there's in the spirit of driving this conversation to the specifics that we need to take seriously and delivering and supporting this transition to a clean energy future, to a real response to climate change. So three communities. One are the folks whose budgets are already so tight the prospect of paying more for the harm they're causing the fossil fuels they're burning is a big shock to them so I think we have to have a strategy for the lowest income bracket. Second of all, we have to have a strategy for the parts of the country that are fossil fuel dependent and not well positioned to transition. And uh, that's sometimes now called the West Virginia problem. And it's gotta be taken seriously. And then third, and I think this is the piece that's the silent part of the story, but critical, is that it turns out uh, that rural people are much more energy intensive than city people. And so if we're going to have a transition, I think one of the things we need to pay attention to is if we collect the money of these harm charges that I'm calling for that I think there's growing momentum for I think we have to redistribute that money not per capita not to every person but I think we should send it to the states and we should send it to the states with a kicker supporting extra payments to the states with the poor people that are most affected the fossil fuel communities that are going to be jarred and to the rural communities that are going to have to regear themselves and I think that would go a long way to help build the political momentum to get over the hurdle and get something done. That sounds
0: like the rural states, though, are the red states and the, the, the urban states are the blue states. So is that a, a, a blue red wealth distribution strategy?
2: You know, my view is you're going to have to get a political coalition built here. And the, uh, the folks that are hesitating today are red state elected officials. And you're going to have to develop a strategy to get them on board.
3: So that's a yes. Uh, You know, uh, yes, you know, we're going to there's these these blue states, California and and New York and uh, are going to have to figure out a way that uh, people are benefiting from uh, climate transitions across the center of the country. You're not ever going to get them to join a national coalition by saying if only you had as much access to education, resources, tech companies and wealth as we had, you'd be as educated and you wouldn't be ruining my life. That is not a winning argument politically okay so so you've actually got to go with the generous outreach of my fellow americans how do we rise together Okay, and and not demonize you for your history in the ag belt or the or the iron belt or the uh, energy belt. How do we rise together in a transformation that we must have at the fastest possible pace?
0: If you're just joining us, we're talking about Climate One today, about risk and big ideas in climate change. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Andy Carr, Dan Esty, professor at Yale School of Forestry and Law. He's editor of the new book, A Better Planet. Forty big ideas for a sustainable future. And Andy Karzner is a former official in the Department of Energy under the second President Bush, and a space cowboy at X, the Moonshot Factory affiliated with Google. Dan Esti, um it's been quite a while since we've seen a grand bipartisan bargain in this country. Maybe you know, there's recently some deals uh, deal on uh, um, criminal justice sentencing. There's been a, f- a few of them, but since the days of McCain-Feingold, grand bargains. Um, is that still possible in, in today's? divided politics? And is it necessary to get real action on climate that goes across uh, handoffs between Republicans and Democrats? Because this this climate policy has to endure handoff
2: change of power. So let's start with the necessary. I think it's essential. And I'm going to offer something that's truly counterintuitive. Transformative change does not come from the extremes. It comes up the middle because what makes it transformative is not that it happens for a moment, but that it endures that it's around five and ten years later after the political pendulum swings. And frankly, the last major piece of environmental legislation, I would argue, is the 1990 Clean Air Act. And I'd like to test the students at Yale uh, on what they think the final vote in the United States Senate was on the 1990 Clean Air Act, the answer. And just I just to
0: clarify, this is jo- the first President Bush in the White House.
2: First President Bush in the White House. You know, so we have a Democratic Congress. President is Republican we are coming together on a bipartisan basis, and you know, the, the B students at Yale, who have never experienced anything other than political division of the deepest sort, are sure that it was 51-49. The A students say, oh no, no, it takes 60 votes to clear the, uh, the threat of filibuster in the Senate, it was probably 60-40. The answer was 89 to 11. And it it was a moment where, by the way, and having been there working on this issue uh, again with a broad team, we lost equal numbers, five and six off Democratic and Republican side. So it was truly bipartisan. And what that meant was that as we began to roll it out and implement it, and by the way, it's still being implemented, it's not fully done. Um, But over the next decade, both Republicans and Democrats came together to fix the little mistakes that were built in. And any time you take on transformative change, you're in this case, we're redoing the kind of foundations of industry in America. And the next change that we're talking about is relaying the energy foundations of society. You will get things wrong. And if you've done it on a partisan basis, as soon as the other guys take power, they're going to say, look at how these guys screwed it all up. Let's undo what they did and just pull it back. So I think necessary. Absolutely. Now, your second question was, is it possible? And I think that's a harder question. Uh, Not, I think, in the current political moment. I have no hope that in the coming year we'll see anything. But I think in the not too distant future, uh, there is a prospect. But it is only a prospect if we get to what uh, I sometimes call the radical centrist solution, which is radical in that it's going to be transformative, but it has an ability to attract a broad base of political support. My core number is 70% support. You can't do it if you've got a deeply angry, defeated side of the spectrum.
0: Andy Karzner, that's actually happened in California. We've had that consistency across Republican and Democratic administrations. I see very little chance of that in, in Washington. A lot of chances of that happening at the state. So talk about yep. you know most of the energy that goes into American homes and businesses are regulated at the state and regional level. There is state action that is crossing the party lines, like Dan said, just not in Washington.
3: Well, I, I, and I'm going to I'm going to go there. I'm not going to avoid that. But I but I've got to correct Dan for the record, because uh, because the, I I told him earlier that, the, uh, that energy legislation uh, always has environmental consequence and environmental legislation uh, always has energy consequence. So I would say the last bipartisan, omnibus, comprehensive legislation was the 2007 Energy and Defense Security Act. And you'd say, well, that was just energy. Well, maybe, except for that it phased out incandescent lighting and it gave the federal government a standard of 30% emissions reduction, gave us a renewable fuel standard, you know, created uh, bins in, in our uh, vehicle mileage that the Obama administration Used to incorporate uh, electric vehicles and, and so forth, uh, and it gave us 10-year runway on the production tax credit, and the uh, investment tax credit, etc. Uh, the common characteristic of both of those, and they shouldn't be 15 and 17 years apart. Now we're 15 years past that, or to, you know, that that it shouldn't be that because it, we should be having a dynamic, adaptive legislative leadership that is sufficiently attuned to the capacities of society and all the sectors of society and technology, finance, NGOs, etc. That it is. Ready regularly modifying itself in an adaptive way to stay ahead of the curve, but we wait for these 15-year things. In our case, it was $147 oil and two big hurricanes that allowed us to do it, okay? We can't wait for that, but what Dan's stressing that is absolutely correct is that our aspiration in that legislation was not arm-twisting the 51st vote and cutting a special deal. It was not finding how to uh, get, wait for the next election and have our party lead. It was accepting that uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, party was running the House, and even with a different party in the Senate, we could build the coalitions for two-thirds majorities on both sides because the goal was to be judiciary-proof and to provide investors, entrepreneurs, innovators, farmers, society at large with a predictable signal and runway that was durable with sufficient longevity to to make real change, and that's what's happened in the last decade, And we, but we need a refresh because we didn't legislate for artificial intelligence, machine learning, the internet of things, cloud compute and, and, and sensors. We didn't have all that, and so Washington again has got to get attuned you're right that they're not leading, they're lagging. And if you're gonna find the leadership, you're gonna find it amongst these governors who care first and foremost about economic development and the safety and security of their citizens. So even in some of these red states, uh, um, North Carolina and and, and others, you're finding very aggressive pushouts to say, how do I get that new manufacturing base here? How do I stimulate that economic activity? What happened right in California? How do we bring it to New Mexico? We have 13 states right now that have already gone to, that have followed California's zero emission uh, 2045 mandate so that that's happening like wildfire right and 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 so we've got to take very seriously the learning laboratories of the states because that is in fact where the leadership is occurring because they're much more attuned to the economic development locally
2: and I would say that we've got um lots of evidence that governors are getting things done. And frankly, they can be done on a bipartisan basis that holds together as party leadership changes. Uh, In Connecticut, I worked to set up the first in the nation Green Bank uh, to ramp up the flow of private capital using limited government money to leverage those funds to really take uh, energy efficiency to scale, renewable power to scale in a way that couldn't be done with a limited government money. And, um, you know, that package came together um, and ended up getting not just Democratic majority, but got every single state senator in the whole state of Connecticut, uh, 36 out of 36, every Republican as well as every Democrat. And out of 151 state representatives, all but five voted yes. And of the five that voted yes, uh, voted no. uh, Those five that voted no, three of them later said, oh, I meant to vote yes. It was late at night. I didn't know what button to press. (laughs) And so it turns out when you actually drive something to conclusion, it's going to work, and it has worked. It's scaled up the flow of energy, of of money to energy efficiency and renewable power dramatically. Uh, And you're getting $7 of private capital for every $1 of government money in the system. You know, everyone's in favor of it. But that's where I think the answer to why we need to move forward uh, is in this idea that you can be bipartisan, you can get people to come together with the right policy framework.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about big ideas for confronting the climate challenge. This is Climate One. Coming up, fixing capitalism. The market will work. If you're trying to
3: solve for climate change, the market will eliminate humans. And if that happens, you will probably return to equilibrium. Okay, But that's not a market response I would like to have.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One records many of our conversations with a live audience at our modern and green new home on the waterfront in San Francisco. When you're in town, I invite you to come check us out. Our programs are open to the public and listed on climateone.org. We're talking with Andy Karsner, former official in the Department of Energy under the second President Bush and a senior strategist at X, the moonshot factory affiliated with Google, and Dan Esty, professor at Yale School of Forestry and Law School, and editor of the new book, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. Another contributor to Dan's book is Monica Medina, a former official with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, which oversees the National Weather Service. With extreme events rising, she says the federal government should create a new service that recognizes the difference between weather and climate.
4: Climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. So the difference is climate is thinking long term, what are the average temperatures? What is it usually like outside this time of year? And then weather is actually what you get. And right now we have a fantastic group of public servants who do their best to predict the weather, including the most extreme weather events that we've seen in recent years. But they are not really set up to do the kind of seasonal, interannual and targeted forecasts we're going to need for the climate changes that we're going to be experiencing in the future. Things that would help farmers or the insurance industry, or just average folks get ready for the climate in the months, weeks and years ahead, we need to create a national climate service within the National Weather Service in order to better prepare us for the strong storms, the, all the environmental changes we're going to be experiencing during climate change, from droughts to sea level rise to storm surge, hurricanes, uh, fire. We need more data. We need more supercomputer time to crunch the data and we need then the scientists to work on products that will help people. Right now, it's, we have small climate service offices scattered around the country. It's dozens of people, not the thousands that we probably need. Lots of people have talked about the need for this service. In fact, NOAA has studied it extensively and had come up with lots of options um, that we were considering at the beginning of the Obama administration. And we just never were able to get the funding from Congress. There's a lot of study about how we save money by adapting and by preparing, but that's more than just having emergency response ready. It is how do we change where we build things, what we build, the way we build them, where we uh, develop, where we don't, how we create natural ways to defend ourselves. But without the kind of climate forecasting that we need, we won't know where to do it.
0: Monica Medina held senior positions at NOAA under President Obama and President Clinton. Dan Esty, she wrote a chapter in your book. seems like if we can't get something so basic and nonpartisan as there's a joke going around, we don't need the National Weather Service. We have the Weather Channel. Well, where do you think the Weather Channel
2: gets the data, right? Uh It's beyond belief that people could (laughs) offer that. But it tells you the kind of moment we're in. And frankly, it's even worse. There's kind of a hostility to expertise, to science, to data, to analysis. So I think Monica's argument is is essentially correct. Uh, And I think more broadly, there is a moment coming where we're going to go back to science as uh, as critical to decision-making, not just in the environmental arena or energy arena, but broadly. And frankly, the expertise is a good, not a bad thing. Andy Karsner,
0: there was a company, actually some ex-Googlers came out and, and formed something called the Climate Corporation, which was using scientific data to look at crop risk, that sort of thing. It was eventually uh, bought by Monsanto. Mm-hmm. This raises the question for me, whether corporations will fill a void left by government not really doing the job that it used to do. And what does that mean when, when co- profit-driven companies kind of are, are, are in charge of some of the data that used to be provided as a public good by government?
3: Well, I'm not uh, fearful that um, private companies are availing data. I mean, I think that um, data is here. There is, uh, we have data abundance. We might even have data excess. What we have is a deficiency of data distillation that can yield the relevant insights in a timely manner that can shift uh, the way we think about capitalism, that can shift our imaginations so that we have new indicators to trade upon, because fundamentally this is all about a trade in risk management. If it's Monsanto, it's about what is the crop yield. If it's an insurance company, it's about what's the probability of a storm or the actuarial life of a property relative to whether it's in a fire zone. If it's uh, Larry Fink at BlackRock, it's about what's the real property asset value of all these shopping malls that they own and how, how close to the seashore are they, et cetera. No matter where you are, no no matter what you do, climate change risk is coming in some gradient or form. And for some of us, it's coming much faster. We need that data to get over the legacy antiquated models, which are statistically erroneous because they are all looking at the at the rearview mirror uh, trying to extrapolate empiricism. Empiricism won't work where we're going. We have to have stochastic dynamic modeling that's informed by this data that's distilled uh, uh, appropriately, and then you apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to think faster, right? The machines, we've crossed the lines. The machines that have come out of this Bay Area and are all over the world think faster, they process better, it's never going to change again. What they can't do is, is think higher, Or feel more deeply. And so we have got to have that human spirit to have sufficient empathy and understand the real damage that is occurring in real people's lives right now. And apply that with deliberative design.
0: Dan Estee, you've written a lot about corporate motivations. Recently, we've seen the Business Roundtable come out and say we need to kind of tinker with capitalism a bit, not sort of challenging shareholder primacy. Uh, Larry Fink, you know, Andy just mentioned talking about risk. And, and recently, one that caught my eye was Jim Cramer, you know, that got madman ranting on CNBC said, I'm done with fossil fuels. I'm just done because there's a generational change. Is this happening out of fear and is this for real or is this greenwashing?
2: I think it's a little both. And I think one of the things that we need to be able to do and and maybe Andy's crew at at Google can help us with this is to get the metrics, get the data that allows us to separate the greenwash and the folks blowing smoke from the ones that are really leading to a substantial change in how they do business and in doing so, perhaps guiding us towards a sustainable future. And so I'm a big believer that we should get uh, a better grip on which companies are out there doing what. Uh, There's a a big push now for better environmental, social and governance metrics. Uh, You'll see the acronym ESG. And a lot of investors are saying now, you know, I want better alignment between my portfolios and um, my values. And so, you know, Larry Fink at BlackRock, if I'm putting my money into one of your funds, I need you to tell me that I am actually in alignment. And I think Larry Fink has started to say, well, we're going to get you there. I think, you know, saying the right thing is a start. And then we should hold people's feet to the fire. And I think, you know, that's the uh, role of folks like you and the journalists in the world is to say, really, Uh, you, you made this big pronouncement. Where's the proof? Where's the
0: price for the companies? though? they don't pay any price. And, you know,
3: yeah, it's a it's a great question. I'm saddened that our world has changed into. Are you for a market or against a market? I actually think it's very much a natural condition. And we uh, as humans have the opportunity in our collective communities to impose rules on the market for the market to serve us. But uh, some people are very purist about this. Uh, you have a libertarian friend, uh, Peter Thiel, who will tell you the market always works by itself. Don't touch it. And in this case, the market solving for climate change, I would say he's right. There is, the market will work. Uh, Even it, though climate is a market failure. The, 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 clim- the market will work. If you're trying to solve for climate change, the market will eliminate humans. And, 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 <laughs> and, and, and if that happens, you will probably return to equilibrium. Okay? But that's not a market response I would like to have. Uh, you know, I think one has to account for time and for impact. Okay? And so to act within a time frame that's consequential and not the time frame the market gives you or the consequence the market gives you. Gives you. We need intelligent design, and that means healing the market imperfections of not accounting for these externalities that Dan spoke uh, spoke of.
0: But changing we, the rules of the markets, not doing absolutely. away with markets, just change have absolutely. better rules for the market.
3: Absolutely, we've it, got to turn that capital formation to
2: solutions instead of to construction instead of destruction. Dan, SD. Most people would say that there are market failures. You know, there's a very small number that say it's so little that you don't want to pay attention. Or worse yet, they say that something called the Nirvana fallacy, which is if you intervene, you'll mess things up more. So just don't play. Uh, I think we know that's not right. I think we know that markets have to be shaped by rules. And most people for most people, the question is, what are those rules? And I would say this is one of the undercurrents of our conversation tonight, that the original environmental framework, which is also the energy framework, as Andy points out, was uh, designed in the 1970s in a world that was information poor. We're now in an information rich world. And one of the things that we can do differently today is track those harms and make people pay for them and at very low cost, very low tracking burden. Uh, And I think if you make people pay, they start to pay attention. And if they pay attention, they move actually more often, more quickly than you can imagine to change their behavior. And people come in with innovations to help them change. So the state of Connecticut, where I live on the first of August, put in a tax on plastic bags. 10 cents, 10 cents a bag. The number of families that's economics are changed, not many. Reduction in plastic bag use since April, or since August when this was put in, 80%. So it turns out you can actually dramatically shift not just behavior, but people's thinking. Because it's not the 10 cent cost, although I'm one of these guys that gets to the front of the grocery line, realizes I left the bags in the car, and I go running outside, not because I can't afford to pay 10 cents or 40 cents for four bags, but because it's a reminder to me that there's a sustainability issue here that I should internalize. There'll
0: be students there snapping photos of you if you walk out of the grocery (laughs) store with plastic
2: bags, that's for sure. (laughs) And and that's part of the information revolution, too. Everybody is today a watchdog. Accountability.
0: We're going to go to our lightning round and ask a a true or false question of each of our guests, so this is a one-word answer, true or false, starting with Andy Karzner. While serving in the second Bush administration, you often talked about the promise of clean coal, true or false? False.
3: I can't remember, but uh, <laughs> um, true, probably.
0: I, think I heard you in 2008 in Washington, D.C. at a YREC conference. Was it true? On, yeah, it was okay, true. Good. But the yeah. follow-up was, um, do you believe in clean coal? If clean
3: coal means sequestration and zero emissions, yes.
0: Dan uh true or false, you sympathize with students who disrupted the Harvard-Yale football game protesting university investments in fossil fuels. True. True or false, Andy Karsner, your alma mater, Rice University, should divest from fossil fuels. I don't feel equipped to say. I don't know. Uh, true or false, Andy Karzner... Fossil... Not
3: if it deprives kids of education who will be solving these problems. I, so I, I need to understand... You know, uh, there,
0: there's a, yeah. I asked that of Lisa Jackson one time, and uh, no, no, it was actually someone in the audience asked Lisa Jackson, should Tulane, her alma mater, mm. divest? Mm. And Lisa said, actually, I would went to, went to Tulane on a scholarship from Shell Oil. That's what I so think. So I don't think... And you can argue whether her education, what Lisa has done since that... Yeah, you No, know, that education. My view,
3: my, my view, just to be clear on that, my view would be uh, close to what Dan's is. Not everybody jumps the broom at the same time, right? So if Harvard or Stanford can afford that in their endowment and, and get away with it and send a signal, I think that's great. Um, if MIT can convert the uh, oil industry to having a carbon price or cap and trade, I think that's great. This is not all going to happen at once, and we're going to have to let things happen in gradients.
2: And I am also a favor of having these institutions. So much for one word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have these institutions invest in solutions companies as much as divest from problem companies. And I think to engage with those that can make a difference, steer them towards becoming solution providers.
0: Dan Estee, true or false, fossil fuel companies that fund university research exert influence over that
2: research. Oh, I'm sure that is true.
0: Also, Dan Estee, is there unburnable carbon on the balance sheet of fossil fuel companies today? Uh,
2: Almost certainly, yes
0: that the valuation of those stocks is based on carbon It's
2: inflated by their holding these reserves, which they're not in any relevant time frame going to be able to take advantage of.
0: Uh, Andy Karsner, true or false, you sometimes feel guilty about the privilege you've had as a white American man. I think that's probably true. Dan Esty, uh, most Americans don't know a scientist, let alone a climate scientist. Oh, that's for sure true. Also for Dan, the World Economic Forum in Davos features billionaires lecturing millionaires about curbing poverty.
2: Closer to true than you would want to believe. Unequivocally true.
0: <laughs> uh, Andy Karsner, most elected Republicans in Washington, D.C. are climate cowards. True. I'm going to mention a one phrase and you mentioned the first thing that comes to your mind. Andy Karsner, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say hydrogen cars? Hydrogen-powered cars. Um, insufficient scale. Daniel Esti EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. You used to work at the EPA. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler.
2: Not so good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> also, Dan SD, uh Trump's 2020 budget that proposes 26% cut in U.S.
2: EPA's funding. Ridiculous, and will not proceed. Also, for
0: Dan, cellular protein, also known as lab meat.
2: Uh, needs work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Last one, Andy Karsner, what comes to mind when I say blue collar boom?
3: My dad's career,
0: but uh, um, education. All right, let's give a round of applause. Getting through the lightning round. You've been listening to a conversation about Big Ideas for Solving the Climate Challenge with Dan Esty, Professor of Environmental Law and Policy at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and Yale Law School. He's also editor of the new book, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. And Andy Karsner, former Assistant Secretary for Energy Efficiency and Renewables under the second President Bush, and a space cowboy at X, the moonshot factory affiliated with Google. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please help us better understand you, our listeners, by taking a brief survey at climateone.org forward survey. Everyone who participates will get a shot at one of eight $250 gift cards to thank you for your time. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, Arnav Gupta, Annie Chelsea, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.